Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Social Review Podcast. I'm your host, Jasper, at JasperCH on Twitter. Uh, and this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing the wonderful Marie Leconte. Uh, she is a freelance journalist and now author who has written a brand new book called Haven't You Heard? Gossip, Power and How Politics Really Works. You can follow her on Twitter at Young Vulgarian. And we had a little bit of a chat about gossip, power and how politics really work. So sit back, relax and as usual, enjoy. Yes. Uh, Haven't You Heard Gossip, Power and How Politics Really Works um, came out this week, last week. I can't remember. It's been a bit of a days to be honest. Like It's... Um, all very absurd but yes no, it's, a, it's a real book I need to stop calling it a real boy as in he's a real boy which I do whenever I see a copy um, in the world but yes no um, it's happened now I'm very excited to read it um, for starters um, it sounds really cool um, political gossip and gossip in general is always very fun um, and I was wondering what inspired you to write the book um, was it purely just also recognition of like you know political gossip is fun and there weren't that many books on it was it that kind of thing um so yeah what what inspired you to write it um well I guess the short version was that so I'd been wanting to write a book for quite a long time because I just really enjoy the process of writing um but I just didn't really have an idea and so last April I remember quite clearly so I was in bed I can sleep and I was like you know what I'm just going to try and come up with a book I want to write because I've been wanting to do this for so long and clearly I can't get to sleep um and yeah and so like the way I kind of did it I was like, okay what am I interested in I was like, okay well politics is uh the really obvious one so it's got to be something within politics and then I kind of you know sat there in bed and I was like oh gossip I care about gossip I really like gossip um so you know how about doing that and then but I actually kind of went to bed being like this is a good idea but someone must have written a book like this already because it's such an obvious topic um and I woke up and I googled around and you know couldn't find anything which I thought was very odd, but obviously good for me. Um, so yes, that's kind of uh, how it started. And the slightly longer version is that, so I got into Westminster via a slightly unusual route, so I've never been a lobby journalist or anything. I started out by being a diarist on the Evening Standards uh, Londoner's Diary desk. Um, so kind of effectively being halfway between a kind of like celebrity gossip column and private eye, I guess, is kind of the why I tried to describe what I was doing there. And I thought that was really fun. And I really feel, well, I really felt that I'd got to see a side of politics that I didn't really know existed and kind of gave it so much more depth. And I guess like my understanding of it was a lot fuller then. And so, yeah, so I guess it was kind of, you know, I kind of wanted to transfer that to people to be able to explain, I guess, yeah, how politics really works. If the book was kind of like a direct result of your um, of you starting out as a, as a journalist, as a political diarist at the Evening Standard, um, that kind of seeks nicely into what I was going to ask next about how you ended up coming into um, journalism, freelance journalism and um, political journalism specifically. Was that something you always wanted to pursue? Um, was it uh, something you just kind of fell into? Like what, what was the what was the process behind that? Uh, <laughs> so... The thing is that I really need to come up with a, like, maybe more diplomatic version of how I got into politics. But to be fair, like, the real one <laughs> is quite funny. Um, but no, basically, I mean, the genuine truth. So I moved to the UK in September 2009, exactly 10 years ago. Um, and I was 17, you know, I didn't really care about politics. So I guess I did in the sense that, you know, French people, I think, care more about politics as a baseline than British people. But still, like, didn't really care that much. And then I started, you know, vaguely paying attention, but like really, really vaguely to the election of 2010 um, because I was studying journalism and I kind of had to. Um, but then the real catalyst was, so at the end of the first year of my degree, 
um, which happened to actually be the night of the election, not that I cared. Um, I just wanted to get very drunk. And there was this guy uh, who I really, really fancied who was in a band, because of course he was, because I was 18. Um, and he was playing a gig and we sort of knew each other. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to the gig and I'm going to finally try to get with him. Um, and so I went to this gig uh, and I dragged along, I think, like a few friends. We all got very drunk. And then at the end of the gig, he comes to see me and he's like, oh, by the way, like I'm doing an after party at my house. It'd be lovely for you to come. And I was like, oh my God, like it's finally happening. I'm going to get with him. Um, and so I think my friends left by that point. They bailed, which fair enough. And so I kind of end up at this house party, mostly full of people in their like mid to late 20s, quite far from where I lived. And I was still quite new to London, so I didn't really know how to get home. And then literally the second we got there, that guy started hitting on and then getting off with some other girl. And I was like, ah, I do not know what to do. I know no one here and I'm quite a lot younger than everyone else. Um, and I realised that the TV was on um, in a corner of the living room and I was like, you know what, fine, I'll see what's going on. And so long story short, I ended up spending the night um, watching the election um, by myself in the corner of this random house party until like 8am. And I was like, this is so much fun. Um, with I think the kind of uh, <laughs> saddest point being so that guy had someone coming back to me and being like, oh my God, what's going on? So yeah, this was pre like proper smartphones and stuff. And I was like having literally just said what it meant. I was like, well, you know, it's a hung parliament. There's no overall majority, blah, blah, blah. So I explained it. And then he literally went straight back to the girl to explain it to her word for word. So it was quite low. But um, anyway, I kind of feel like I need to thank that guy because that's literally how my interest in politics started just by me trying to get laid and failing. That is honestly the most fantastic explanation for getting into a career of any kind I've ever heard. Please never come up with a diplomatic answer to that question. So then you ended up as the political diarist at the Evening Standard. Was that like um, just after you finished your degree? Um, or was there kind of like an in-between period of, um, of other journalism e-jobs? Um, no, actually, that is, <laughs> I'm now going to feel very self-conscious about this. But um, no, like, I'd been working in journalism for two and a half years by the point I joined the Standard. Um, and weirdly got my first journalism job kind of because I was trying to impress a guy as well. So I was about to graduate uh, from the University of Westminster. I didn't really have any contacts or anything, but I did have this guy, uh, we sort of had a bit of a thing, uh, who was already a journalist and who said not long before I graduated was like, oh, hey, like, you know, uh, let's do drinks, come meet some of my friends who are actually journalists as well. So, you know, make some contacts and stuff. Um, and I was really stressed because I really wanted to make a good impression to like his grown up friends. Like he was my age with the other journalists were older. And also like, yeah, I was like, you know, I need to, I don't know, I need to appear like a proper like adult or whatever, even though I'm 21. Um, and so I got very, very, very drunk. Um, I have few memories from that night, but I think I ended up trying to pole dance on one of the, like, the random like pools in the bar, which was just like a pub, not even a club. And I stole a pizza from somewhere, genuinely unclear where from, and then went to eat it in the toilets by myself. But anyway, long story short, so the next day I woke up and I was like, I want to die, I'll never be a journalist, like, you know, this is the end of like my career that has not even started. Um, but then, turns out that one of the women who was there, who worked at the Telegraph at the time, um, some months later, so August 2013, needed someone to um, replace her for like, um, take her shifts for two weeks because she was going on a holiday. And uh, and yeah, she remembered me from, you know, being a drunken idiot and got my number from this guy and texted me um, and was like, do you want to, you know, do you want to come in and be on the picture desk as telegraph for a couple of weeks? Um, and I said, yes. So I kind of like taught myself Photoshop in about three days, which was very stressful. Um, and then I started working there. So like part time. And I basically did lots of like kind of in a weird way did a sort of graduate scheme, except 
it was just by being freelance in a bunch of places and I did it myself. So I did picture desk at the Telegraph for a while. Uh, I did sort of like fun internet stuff and also data journalism for the Mirror. Um, I wrote about Bitcoin for a month because I kind of needed the money and I could. Uh, I did some new stuff for Metro. Like I kind of worked everywhere. And then the standard was originally, so in, that started in January 2015, was one of those like freelance gigs, except that that was the first one that made me go like, okay, this is really, really what I want to do. Like this is, I, I found the thing, I found my passion. And from there, I guess quite organically, I was like, also all I really want to write about is politics. So yeah, there you go. That is also another fantastic anecdote. So on journalism and specifically on the principle of like impartiality in journalism, um, that's something which has been drawn under a lot of like new fresh scrutiny in the couple of years after Brexit um, and also with Trump in America um, and uh, other populist presidents and prime ministers and politicians around the globe. Um, the role of journalists uh, and what function they perform has kind of come under um new light and you get people who are very hardcore remain um who are like the bbc is biased against uh, biased against remain uh, and then you get brexiteers being like the bbc is biased against biased against uh, against brexit um and uh this idea that like impartiality should be um sticking firmly to the truth and discrediting discrediting like clear falsehoods when they when when they come out and there are others who say that it should be about giving kind of like treating treating it all as like an opinion and giving all opinions like equal airtime um i was wondering like what do you have a view on what like impartial journalism means in the in the 21st century what kind of function do you think um journalism and political journalism and impartial journalism and should be playing um in this kind of context where everything is so kind of polarized that is a really hard question to answer mostly because i can't answer it with a story about me trying to get off with a guy um (laughs) (laughs) um but uh, i'm not sure i mean it is something i've thought about a lot and so i think especially in the context of brexit where I find it quite problematic, the fact that you cannot, you know, a lot of journalists are generally just trying to put facts forward and just being called Remainers or, you know, whatever, like traitors, etc. for, you know, for kind of just pointing out those facts that it is, I don't know, so to be clear, I do not know what the solution is. Um, and it's something I've talked about with other journalists before, but it is, you know, I get that, you know, if you're, let's say, a hardcore Brexit supporter, it can look like basically all reporting on Brexit is negative on the effects of Brexit um, is negative. However, it is true that, you know, Brexit would be bad in a lot of ways. So, you know, and I don't really need to list them all like you'll know as well as I do. And so I'm not entirely sure, you know, and that I feel like that doesn't invalidate the fact that people voted for it. And, and you know, and as we know, I think people don't always vote for the economic, uh, economic self-interest and so on. Um, but yeah, but I'm not entirely sure, you know, you can't sort of like make up sort of like positive facts about Brexit for the sake of sort of like so-called impartiality. So I'm not really sure journalism actually has found the answer to that. If you look at the coverage of Brexit, you kind of look at the coverage of politics recently. I'm not sure um, that's really worked. And I'm, and I'm not sure, you know, again, what the solution is. It is a really tough one. And I think social media is quite interesting as well in terms of, you know, you can basically tell that apart from the properly, properly boring sort of like lobby bots who will literally just tweet, you know, um, just, just tweet basically the pieces they've written or whatever. Everyone else, you can sort of guess where they stand, like not necessarily like, you know, their actual faction or whatever, but you can normally tell if someone is broadly speaking, like, you know, pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit or is left wing or right wing. Um, and, you know, and I'm not, so part of me, I think, 
So yeah, like my personal view of this is that I think this is quite a positive thing. Like I personally quite like knowing, you know, and it's not does not mean that I don't trust journalists or I would trust them more or less um, once I know where they stand. But I personally think it is useful to know uh, where someone stands on an issue. And, you know, and if that were the case, like, you know, I'd be happy airing my personal views or at least, you know, kind of saying vaguely where I stand. But on the other side, as you mentioned, we do live in such a polarised world that I do worry that, you know, if someone is, I don't know, out as right wing, then, you know, a lot of left wing people will say, well, you know, I'm not going to read anything that journalist does. I'm not going to trust their reporting because clearly they're biased for the other guys um, and vice versa. So... I'm not really sure, you know, what the way forward is, because on the other hand, clearly, I think just pretend, you know, pretending effectively that political journalists do not have opinions at all is not really working either. Um, But also, I think that the media is kind of uniquely, well, navel gazing in one sense, in that the media loves talking about itself. Like, you'll know this, you're on Twitter as well, like, like, Twitter is basically just journalists talking about journalists. But on the other hand, I feel like the media tends to shy away from having quite serious discussions about itself and about its role in society and its purpose. And, you know, and I think that's quite a specific British thing as well of just being like, you know, not. Hmm, how do I phrase that? And, and kind of in, in, an, in an odd way, actually, very seriously, not taking itself seriously. Um, and I think it could weirdly gain from being a bit more pompous and having taking a bit of a step back and actually trying to properly discuss you know what it's trying to do and how to do it best so would you say that journalists generally do a good job a bad job a neutral job of um keeping their political views their personal political views and their uh journalism and reporting um separate um or do you think that it really depends on the kind of journalist and um and publication oh um I think actually it doesn't really depend, I don't know, because I think on the one hand there are quite a lot of journalists, but especially I think on the right you can definitely say they're just, you know, obviously on the right, but equally, you know, if you write for, if you report for a right-wing paper, then that's not really a problem. Um, I think, and that's kind of, and that's actually addressed in the book um, quite a lot, it's not necessarily about which parties they prefer, whatever, I do think that what actually matters, and I think what happens not necessarily on a conscious level is journalists may cover the MPs they like and the MPs they dislike uh, individually slightly differently. So I think that one of the examples actually in the book is I talked to this lobby journalist about, so I think it was around the time of the Andrew Griffiths um, sexting scandal. Um, And what the guy said was, well, actually, you know, what we've learned from that is that clearly a lot of journalists don't really, either don't really think highly of Andrew Griffiths or just don't really care about him either way because they were quite happy sticking the knife in um, effectively when, you know, but, that's the journalist, not me, saying, had it been, you know, and I'm not going to name names because it's going to sound like I'm making weird sort of allegations, but um, if it'd been one of those MPs who the lobby really like, you know, uh, an MP who's generally really interesting, who talks to journalists, who's engaging, etc., then, you know, on the one hand, there probably would have been, you know, a kind of surface level thing of, oh, well, actually, you know, is this really a big story if it's just like someone sexting or whatever? But beyond that, his argument was saying, actually, even before we even get to the conversation with the editor or something, there would probably be a level of us being a lot more understanding of that person's choices. So the same way that, I don't know, you know, and you can take that out of politics entirely of, I don't know, if you're at your office's Christmas party and like two people make out, I think the way you see that, and let's say, you know, the woman has a boyfriend, 
how you judge that situation will depend massively on whether you're mates with that woman or not. So, you know, if you're mates with her, I think you're probably a lot more likely to say to yourself, just, you know, well, you know, she was really drunk and like, her boyfriend's a shit. So, you know, she deserves it, etc. She's had a really tough day. Whereas if you hate her, you'd probably be like, well, you know, there you go. Kind of like proof she can't be trusted and sit on. And that's not necessarily something that happens. You know, it's not a conscious decision that you take to judge someone differently, depending on whether you like them or not. And I think quite a lot of that does happen with journalists and the way they cover individual MPs of you know, whether they like them or not will kind of influence their decision and how, I guess, they write about stories, not necessarily about whether they write stories or not, but how they decide to write them. To divert slightly, ever so slightly, your citizenship uh, as a French Moroccan national um, has been politicised uh, as a result of Brexit. Um, and we talked a lot about impartiality already, um, but this is an area in which it is directly affecting your life, right? Um, so would you say that it's been a struggle to reconcile being a journalist and, and, and trying to just, you know, get on with doing your job um, with uh, the Brexit crisis? Like, have you found like, oh, you know, I want to tweet this, which is perhaps like very, you know, a very angry tweet towards the government for, you know, being incompetent or whatever. Um, uh, have you found yourself like shying away from tweeting those kind of things or writing um, those kind of articles? Um, you did, you wrote a very good piece um, in The Guardian um recently about the process and the experience of being a new national living um in the uk uh which i really enjoyed reading um but yeah I, I was just kind of wondering like how um how brexit has affected your um your reporting and also your judgment of um your judgment of how to report stories it's not been entirely straightforward so i think i've ended up actually from even quite early on so the first few essays i wrote about i mean you know about brexit before we even really had a word were i think just before the campaign started if i remember correctly so it is something i've kind of been writing about from a personal perspective for quite a long time um and and actually you know what like part of the reason why i went freelance was because there was at buzzfeed um was that um, among other things that I was like, you know, I cannot see myself just reporting, doing very, very straight news about Brexit and what, what goes on for, you know, the next however many years. Um, I did kind of want to have more freedom on that because, because you know, as, as you said, it is something, especially the kind of thing around citizenship, um, that that is hard not to take personally. And I guess that's kind of actually in a weird way what that piece in the guardian was which funnily enough was just not meant to be that at all like i you know they just got in touch to be like can you do a sort of like funny like wry piece on like the pretty patel fuck it up um and i kind of like launched myself into writing that and then just got more and more earnest and i like, got myself quite upset as well writing it um but i think it has been weird because obviously part of my job means that so but yeah a, the quick answer is I try not to do any reporting specifically around kind of like what Brexit is going to mean, etc. Because I do see myself as quite tainted on the topic because I've got such a personal stake in it. Um, the longer, more complicated answer is I think that, and again, and I'll come back to that Guardian piece, um, is that because of my job, I do have to hang out, you know, but weirdly, so I've never found it hard to hang out with people from all over the political spectrum. Like, that's something that's fine, obviously. I privately know who I agree with, who I disagree with. I know that certain people I can just have proper massive chats with. Other people, I will try and kind of stay, actually, you know, um, on the gossip, you know, on the kind of, like, you know, personal sort of, like, chit-chat. Because if we start talking about policies, you know, I'll probably... Um, I'd probably be a bit too honest in what I think and why I hate them. But with Brexit, you know, I have had to hang around a lot of overseas, so sort of like everyone from, you know, like hardcore Remainers to hardcore Brexiteers. And that is something I do genuinely find harder even now, because obviously as a journalist and even just as a, as a Westminster person, I am expected to be able to have, 
you know, normal conversations with those people, you know, not necessarily be friends with them, but, you know, be cool with them. And actually, I am friends with, like, you know, a number of people who voted for Brexit. But I think that that's ended up bubbling up. So for quite a long time, I was like, you know, this is fine. I can just do this. I can just separate myself from this. But yeah, and that's kind of why I think I exploded with that Guardian piece. That after a while, I realised that I cannot take it personally. Like, I'm sorry, especially when you talk about, you know, when they talk about immigration, the fact that, you know, Brexit basically happened because there are too many immigrants, because people want Europeans to stop moving here, etc. Like, after a while, it becomes very hard not to, you know, stick your hands up and say, like, it's me you're talking about, like, for the love of God. Like, it is me. Like, this is me. This is people I know. And obviously, you know, as you mentioned, I'm half Moroccan as well. So my mum moved from Morocco to France when she was in her mid-twenties. Um, so it, it, it's not just me, you know, it's my mum as well. It's my family. Um, and it's and it's really hard to kind of smile and nod um, when people talk about it. So no, it is something I've personally found hard. And I think I'm pretty sure it's the first time, apart from the piece, that I'm properly talking about it publicly actually because because again you know to come back to what we were saying earlier like times are so polarized that just by saying this I you know I assume that my opinions on any of the topics are now going to get discounted by people who'll be like oh no but you know she's just like a gobby remainer anyway so who cares what she says because it's impossible for me to talk about it in a way that's not that doesn't mean taking a side even though again I'm not I'm not this is not me taking a side this is just me talking about my own personal lived experience and do you think that you're going to want to stay in the UK post-Brexit? Um, or is that something that which is going to depend on how Brexit is actually resolved, or at least how this stage of Brexit is actually resolved? Uh, I'm not sure, to be completely honest. So last year, last summer, I got quite close to moving to Brussels, um, you know, by which I mean like, I'd been looking for flats, I'd booked a one-way ticket to Brussels, um, I told some, like, some of my friends, like most of my close friends, um, and then basically what happened is that I, I got the big deal, which I wasn't really expecting. Um, so I stayed, but it's still something I'm thinking about. I think my main thing is that I really want the settled status, which, you know, I've not applied for yet, to be clear. But, um, but you know, I need to apply for it. I need to make sure it goes through. I need to know that we are having the sort of Brexit where, you know, the settled status will count and will not, you know, magically break down or whatever. Or the Home Office is not going to do what it does best, uh, which is, you know, trying to keep, keep immigrants out. Um, and once that happens, you know, I will, it's my understanding of the settled status that I could leave the UK for up to five years and then come back and sort of like keep uh, my legal status. So once that comes through, I could definitely see myself like actually, except I do really love Brussels, kind of moving there for maybe like a few years and, you know, kind of let the UK do its thing and come back when it's calmed down a bit. Because I, at the end of the day, you know, London is my home. I've been living here for 10 years. Um is, is you know is the place I love it is again it is, it is home um and I do see myself kind of growing old here but at the same time it is kind of unbearable at the moment so so yes I'm not sure I'm just generally not sure as long as you keep tweeting on your on on your twitter actually um uh well goes without saying I always enjoy your tweets um as I'm sure the rest of the editorial team does as well you tweet a lot or at least I seem to think that you tweet a lot about kind of like work-life balance um, and leisure. Um, we're quite big on leisure over here. Um, you know, we like the four-day week policy and that kind of thing. Um, I was wondering, do you feel that you balance your work around your life uh, or are you balancing your life around your work? Um, because that is a very freelance thing, right? Um, you never know how much work you're going to have at any given time period some periods are going to be really busy like this time period for you for example with um the book tour i'm sure um and other periods are going to be 
less busy. Um, so do you do you find that you're prioritizing uh, living a good life um, over just doing as much work as possible, or how does how does that work out? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. So I've had um, genuine arguments with my mum, who's the typical sort of like first generation immigrant mum, uh, over that. But no, I I basically have an amount of money um, I need to earn every month to live. Um, and then an amount of money that's a bit higher than that, which I'd say, you know, is the amount um, that I need to earn if I want to, like, you know, have a nice month, but also, you know, maybe like occasionally like buy stuff I don't really need or get takeaway if I'm hungover or maybe save a bit for a holiday, whatever. But basically, once that amount is reached, I basically try to reach that amount every month. Um, but once that's done, I don't, I'll, I'll maybe take commissions if people get in touch and, you know, it's something I'm interested in, but that's basically it. Like, I'm not, like, I find it really odd to hear from freelancers who are like, oh, you know, the problem with freelancing is that I never stop working. I'm the complete opposite. Like, I, um, I aim to normally work around six hours a day, uh, seven on big days, but obviously, you know, that can be sort of like around different bits of the day. Like, it's not necessarily in a row. Um... And yeah, no, no, I mean, my, my personal life and my kind of, yeah, my, my leisure life is very, very, very important to me. And actually, I would argue, so in terms of policy stuff, um, and I'm not sure how you could possibly make it work, but I'm not sure the four-day week is the way forward. I think what's the way forward is keeping five days but making the work days quite a lot shorter. So instead of like eight to nine hours, um, as a standard thing, I do think it should be six to seven because that's my current life. And it's so great. And that's part of the reason why I could not really see myself um, getting getting another full-time job anytime soon because it's just really nice. I get to wake up, you know, at sort of like 8.30, 9. I normally have the time to finish work, go home, have a shower, get changed, and then go to the pub for like 6 or 6.30. Um, I get enough sleep. I'm, You know, I can be stressed, obviously, if I have a lot of work or whatever, but I'm rarely as stressed as I would be in another, you know, if I had if I had a job, if I worked in a newsroom. So no, I don't understand. And I think politics and the media are really bad for it as well, of having this kind of like willy-waving contest of like, oh my God, like, you know, I've worked another like 90 hour week. This is so hard. I've not slept for more than three hours in weeks. And I'm just like, literally, this is weird and wrong. What the fuck is wrong with you? Like working is nice. And, and don't get me wrong, like, you know, I really love being a journalist. I love my job, but also I love not working. Like that's my main thing. I'd always take not working over working. Um, so yes, no, and, that, and that's again like basically why I'm freelance. I have to agree with you there on enjoying not working over working and the six hour working day thing. I think if I agree with you, if we all worked six hour, six seven hour days, people would be a lot happier. Um, to tie things back to the book for a final question, um, what is the gossipiest thing that you wrote in the book that you can reveal on the podcast? Maybe not the most gossipiest thing. So um, you know, there's still like an incentive for people to, 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 to buy the book and read it itself. But like, um, is there anything, anything fun which you can reveal here? Um, one of my favourite anecdotes in the book, um, which is like not the main one and not sort of like life-changing, but I thought was quite fun, was... Um, so basically, so I wrote the book and then we sent it to the lawyers and then the lawyers came back to us with you know, a number of anecdotes and said, basically, you need to talk to the people involved for those. Um, and one of them was, uh, so I'd heard it from Francis Ween, who's the deputy editor of Private Eye who's kind of been a political journalist forever. And it was, oh yeah, like in the, I think, late 90s, early 2000s, um, at the Gay Hussar uh, in Soho, where obviously all the like, new Labour people love to, like to hang out. Um, he was like, oh yeah, so Charlie Whelan and Tom Watson ended up getting into a fist fight outside the restaurant because I think like Charlie Whelan had got something wrong with the, like, the early days of Watson 
and called called Tom a Blairite or something like that. I can't remember the exact thing, but basically, long story short, they ended up getting into a fist fight outside the gay hussar um, and it ended up being the Londoner's diary the next day. Um, and yeah, the lawyers were like, okay, that's never been published anywhere, so can you check? Um, and literally the day after, I think I happened to bump into Tom um, in Strangers in Parliament. And I was like, Tom, you know, just the man I wanted to see. Um, I always saw this story. You were there. Was it true? Is it not? You know, can you give me a comment? And he was like, oh, yeah, you yeah, know, it was true, except that we did not get into a fight, um, like a physical fight. There was an argument inside the restaurant. But then what happened is that Charlie Whelan was wearing a kilt and he turned around and lifted it at my wife. <laughs> Which is a much better story. So I was really happy with that. Promise we're not going to get sued if I publish that on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> no, it should be fine. All good. The lawyer said it was fine. So all good. Thank you, Mr. Lawyer. Marie, uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you um, and get your thoughts on political journalism and all that kind of stuff. Um, thank you so much for coming on the Social Review podcast. And if you enjoy the interview, then do go and buy the book uh, or repeat the title. Haven't you heard? Gossip, Power and How Politics Really Works. It's been out for the past couple of days and you can buy it uh, in all good bookstores. Thanks very much, Marie. Oh, thanks for having me. very much for listening to another episode of the social review podcast and thank you very much to marie for coming on as per usual the music you heard was sweet of her mouth composed by kevin mcleod licensed under creative commons thanks again and you'll hear us again next week goodbye